Hey there, welcome to Bandit's Keep. I'm Daniel. So uh, credit for this episode goes to uh, Redcaps. Uh, they're building a fighter uh, in various different editions of D&D over there. And in the OD&D one, a rule that was misunderstood by me and apparently <laughs> by most people, uh, and it seems to only be OD&D that does it this way, uh, talks about how you can how your ability score adjustments, we'll call it, um, are different than what we think they are. Now, that being said, the why am I mentioning it here or talking about it? Two reasons. One, I want to highlight it just in case somebody's listening to this that doesn't listen to Red Caps. I can't imagine that. But just in case you don't, I'll put a link in the show notes. But also because in my version of OD&D, my hack, you know, um, I am going to make the rule much more clear and use it because I think that it is fantastic. So uh, let's talk about that first. So this is uh, kind of interesting and something I'm going to use in the... Uh, OD&D hack for sure, as it seems that it's a rule in OD&D that I didn't understand or I saw probably the way a lot of people see. <laughs> and uh, over at Red Caps, they've kind of cleared this up. It's really interesting. In OD&D, when you look at raising, and I'm air quoting there, your ability scores, you know, based on your, your other attributes, you don't actually change them. And uh, you can listen to that episode. I'll put the link in the show notes where he talks about it. But what I think is more important here is that at the point of making OD&D, what it seems like they're doing there is they're saying, hey, you know what? A fighter with a average strength can still excel at being a fighter if they're also intelligent or also wise. You know, a cleric can excel at being a cleric, which is, you know, basically a holy warrior, if their strength is is high. And the thing about the difference here, I guess, between this and, and what how I thought you were supposed to do it and the way that you do it in BX, that you don't actually change the ability scores, is huge. And it leads to conversations we've had before about things like character builds and min-maxing, right? Because you're always going to want the your character to be as good as they can be, right? I know that some people enjoy playing characters that are, you know, less than perfect or whatever, but and I do too. But the thing is... If you have the ability to, let's say in BX, raise your fighter's strength by lowering their intelligence and you plan on playing a fighter, you're probably thinking, well, I'm going to be a fighter. I'm mostly going to be in melee. I want to raise my strength, not only for the experience point bonus, but also because damage bonus and stuff, which of course you don't get in OD&D. But then what that makes is every BX fighter is going to have a high strength or relatively high, right? Every BX magic user is going to have a high intelligence. Every BX cleric is going to have a high wisdom. Every BX thief is going to have a high dexterity. And if we look at Holmes, because uh, I don't have the Greyhawk book with me, I just looked at Holmes' book. You know, the thief can lower their, you know, because in, in those editions, Holmes and, and BX are lowering the skill. They're lowering their intelligence and wisdom to raise their dexterity. Does that really make sense? Wouldn't a smart and wise, you know, aware streetwise thief be just as good as one that's, uh, you know, nimble? The ability to change the scores basically makes all the characters the same. All thieves have high dexterity. All fighters have high strength. All magic users have high intelligence. And that leads us to today, you know? <laughs> when we look at some of the more modern games where you are building characters, you're putting scores where you want them to, even point by to a certain extent, right? You're going to, you know, the last character, well, second to last character uh, that I played 
in fifth edition for a campaign was a warlock. So what did I do? I put my highest ability score in charisma because that's where you, you wanted as a warlock. Then I put any ability score bonuses in charisma so that my character was charisma through the roof. And then I just adjusted it. And these modern games allow you to do that where everything I did just used charisma. So effectively, everybody, you know, in these games by boosting their prime requisite score, as it would be, and then the games themselves allowing things like, you know, I'm attacking with my charisma score, right? Or if you're a, a rogue, you can attack with your dexterity. So you're basically going to, or a wizard, attack with your intelligence. Essentially, it doesn't matter. You're just that ability score. And everybody becomes that, right? All wizards are smart. All warlocks are charismatic. All rogues are dexterous. And I think that's just not as interesting. So I, I'm definitely, as I'm working towards the... Um, the OD&D hack, you know, which of course I'm still going to put into an actual game now because I've got so much stuff with it. Uh, I'm definitely incorporating the original role, rule, as it would be, from OD&D so that you can be a average strength fighter that's very intelligent and still progress really quickly because a smart fighter stays alive. So, yeah, uh, thanks over at Redcast for enlightening me there. It's really interesting. And, uh, yeah, what do you guys think? Um, again, listen to that uh, podcast so you can get the actual uh, – Rule mechanic. I need to go over here, and uh, yeah, let me know what you guys think. All right, buckle up for a whole bunch of calls. We got. I, I almost did an entire Jason episode because Jason, uh, you know, gave a lot of call-ins this episode. A lot of fun uh, conversations we have. There's also some calls from Rob, also known as Minion, over at the Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushy, and John called in as well, uh, talking about initiative. So we've got all kinds of subjects: initiative. Magic swords and uh, record albums, gifts, chocolate. So <laughs> buckle up and let's take some calls. Hey, Jason here. I'm pulling a Norton. I'm calling in each segment as I go. So initiative. I like chainmail initiative. I like simultaneous initiative. I like phases. I know not everybody likes those things. I like declaring actions. Um, I And recently I've said, and, and this isn't really a joke, I, I really think this, I think you could take Chainmail plus OD&D or OD&D plus Chainmail, do the appropriate genre hacks, which could be a pretty big book depending on the genre you're running, and run any genre with that system. So, yeah, I, more and more I, I wonder if that's not the perfect system or the perfect base system to start all your hacking on. As I said, doing Norton's this time. So as far as BJ's call goes with doing a psychological profile of the elf, and I would also love to hear that. As far as why dwarves don't feel like they have that timeliness or that lack of sense of time, I think because they're creating things, they're digging things, they're trying to do accomplishments. They're trying to do physical accomplishments, whether it's building, you know, building the the kingdom under the mountain or building the, um, you know, whatever magic items or jewelry or gems they're whatever they're doing i think they're doing physical things and definitely i think you hit on something with tolkien where dwarves are much more emotional than the elves are in that book or in that series when you look at i mean obviously the hobbit is you know a, a little bit different but even when you go in the lord of the rings the dwarves show i think more emotion than the elves do although i think it's toned down a little bit in lord of the rings compared to the hobbit yeah, it's funny you say that. I mean, I'm definitely one that believes that the system affects how you play um, on some level. 
you know, I think that there's certain systems that just make you as a player feel a little different or a DM feel different, maybe give you, I don't want to say more freedom, but whatever, however you want to say it. Um, but <laughs> I was looking at the, uh, the man-to-man system and I was thinking about, and then we were also talking about top secret and I was thinking, wow, you could make a chart like that where you have like down the left side, like punch, kick, you know, throw, whatever. And then across the top, the, the defensive move, you know, a duck, a step back, a block, whatever, and then have both sides pick or, you know, whatever you could, you could just say, well, they're doing this. And then you could either just have it have an effect like they do in top secret where it's like a certain amount of damage. Or, the, or you could have a number there to see how effective it is. So if you're going to try to knee them and they duck, then you've got a really good chance of, of getting them, right? Because they're basically going right into your knee. But if you go to knee them and they, they jump back, then you're going to miss them because your knee doesn't have much reach. So at least using the basic ideas of Chainmail, you can see how so many systems can be created. Um, so that, yeah, I just, I really like it. And yeah, I think that you're right about the dwarves. It makes a lot of sense, really, when you think about it, because if the dwarves we'll say have gold, when you're doing something physical uh, the, and less abstract, then I think that you have goals. So maybe you sense um, the time more. You know, you're thinking, okay, well, I've got to build these, these this castle. So you're thinking about the completion of the castle. Whereas if you think of elves more like, uh, you know, thinking of music and enjoying nature and, and, you know, writing sonnets, like maybe they don't feel like there's a rush to do that. I'm not sure. It's, it is really interesting. Um, to kind of think about them psychologically. And we'll just have to wait to see what a BJ comes up with. Okay, I paused before you answered Joe's question about why does it matter if the sword breaks or why isn't it different? And of course, my answer is because it's metal for the sword to break, right? Daniel, you're asking about how to be a metal GM and all this. Having that ha- having that dwarf in a, in a fight with Direwolf and his sword breaks and he still uses that jagged remains of the sword to finish off that foul creature that's metal man fighting with that broken sword you're one your way now rip the sleeves off your t-shirts okay let me go back and listen to what you actually say okay i won't call out that i'm doing a norton through this whole episode but i am of course so respond to nikki you know that's i'm gonna talk about this in my next episode actually which will probably come out on wednesday the, the day this is dropped, so what's Wednesday? First, second, third? I guess the third of November? Anyway, I'll talk about it there, but why I think OD&D, or a hack of OD&D <laughs> to your genre, and Chainmail is the perfect system. I, I really think that. And Nikki's comments kind of tie into that. So I, I'll refer to this episode in my episode, but I, I really think there's something here where you could use this for any genre with any system. And and I'm going to explain that during my episode. But, yeah, I'm, I'm, I really enjoy Nikki's comments, and I, I like when you have her on the show because, you know, she brings some common sense to, to your ramblings. See, and this shows why doing a Norton is so awesome because I just talked about adapting different systems. And then you played Carl's Call where he talks about Warhammer, and you talk about how OD&D could be adapted to Space Marines or anything, which I agree with. OD&D with Chainmail. So, anyhow, great, again, great episode, great conversations. Carl, I hope you download that and look at it. Um, I may just go to this system as my only system next year. We'll see. Although I did promise to run a Merp game for you, so maybe I'll run Merp for you. Okay, this won't be my only system because I'm deviant and 
broken, but I could see this being the one system. But we had to put the system talk aside because Daniel has unboxings. Ah, see, now you're right. That is metal to fight with the sword. However, I wasn't the DM. Nikki was. So to your second comments, yes, it's always great to have her because she's metal and maybe I can learn to be metal through her. Oh, and for the listeners, I will put a link to the episode that Jason, because by the time this comes out, that will be out because it's Thursday now and he said it was going to go on Wednesday. I have not seen it because I'm behind or seen it listened, but I will find the link and I will put it in this show notes as well. Okay, to continue the Nortons, I stopped after your first couple unboxings and now you, you're about to do another unboxing. But before that, I will say I just went to drive through and bought everything Bandits Keep offers on there. For some reason, I missed out. Maybe you said it before, but but I bought the hateful option and then whatever else you did. What is it? No time to haggle. Anyway, there's nine bucks, so never have again. But regardless, you, you know, it's funny you mentioned printing out things. I, I recently printed out through a service I'm not going to mention because I don't want to get them in trouble. But I got print copies of Holmes, AD&D, or AD&D, Holmes Basic, Mulvey Basic, and Cook Basic. I went ahead and got them from somebody other than drive through because I think the quality is better. And I'm really happy with the quality. Next time, maybe when we do our next session, I'll show them to you over Zoom. But I'm really happy with the quality of those. I'd be interested to see. I've seen, I've, I think I have that combined PDF of all, you know, ODD, the three little books combined. I, you know, I haven't looked through. I need to research and see if that really is everything and if it's a good comprehensive one or if I should just get the three little books. Um, and same thing, chainmail. You know, you mentioned staples. The problem with staples, of course, is they slowly rust, right? And I've got that problem with my copies of Arduin. So I've got the first three volumes of Arduin Grimoire, which is like super expensive right now. There was recently an announcement that maybe a different company is going to start offering it or something. They're, they're, they're going to be reoffered, which would be great. You know, I spent 150 bucks on these three little books. And if they come out and they're reasonably priced, I don't care that I lost that 150 bucks because I'd love for it to be readily available again. But my original copies of Arduin Grimoire from, you know, the late 70s, early 80s have staples that are rusted in there. And then you have to pull the staples out to keep it from damaging the books. If I what when I eventually, and we'll see what happens this year if I'm more into running just OD&D and Chainmail. But I would definitely use ideas from Arduin in there because I, I, I think Dave Hargrove was a really inventive guy and brought a lot of great ideas to the table. Kind of like I think Palladium brings in Kevin Samata, although Samata, I can't say his name, but um, obviously he takes credit for some of the other people's work sometimes. But, you know, those games, what even if you don't like the Palladium system, some of the settings in Palladium Worlds are wonderful and, and are really cool. So uh, I'm a big fan of, of the settings of the Palladium Worlds. Um, anyway, you're about to do another unboxing, so let me go listen to that. Ah, yes. You know, it's interesting. In a couple of my copies of Top Secret, the staples are also rusted. So you're probably right about that. Although I just, you know, maybe I just like them for the old school feel. Um, and also they open up flatter. But, uh, oh, and thank you for, for buying the PDFs. The other, uh, <laughs> you probably looked at it by now, but the No Time to Haggle is actually a 5th edition adventure that I wrote when I took the course on writing adventures for 5th edition. I tried to do something that was a little bit more what I would consider an old school vibe, but using the 5e mechanics. So I'd be curious what you think about that, um, with the, about that adventure. 
um, as so much as Arduin. I've never looked at it, though I've heard things about it. And I think there's a bunch of stuff that people were doing early on that is really interesting, right? They took, um, you know, because you, you figure TSR, as they became bigger, which is not uncommon for anything, um, they became more and more mainstream. And you have to you have to temper what you're doing with the mainstream, unfortunately, if you want to continue to be successful that way. So um, I do think that some of the other like third-party stuff, even t- today, is is sometimes more interesting. I mean, I do feel like some companies try to be hardcore or metal or whatever just to do it, which is not my thing. But I definitely think that third-party stuff is much more interesting. And even if I were to go back to playing the modern you know, version of 5e D&D, I don't think I'd buy any more of their books and only buy third-party stuff because I think that uh, I've got the system with the Player's Handbook and what they're creating is in my opinion, going to just be kind of um, pop music, you know? And there's nothing wrong with pop music, but if you want to do something more interesting, sometimes you have to go to, like, the indie channel, right? So, yeah, Arduin's interesting, and I'd be curious, um, you know, what you bring to it from that. And, yeah, I, I, I'm kind of, you know, <laughs> clearly obsessed with Chainmail and od and I really think that the system is very strong and can be used for a lot of things. There's definitely, maybe I'll talk about this as we move forward, more playtesting. There's definitely areas where uh, it becomes, basically the way I'm doing it, the, the characters are become very powerful very quickly, um, especially fighters. So the, the pendulum has swung the other way. So if you don't like that in your games and you're definitely more one of, one of these OSR people that likes to like slaughter PCs and have them die constantly, that's probably not going to happen once you get up about fourth level. Um, which, and I know a lot of people, fourth, fifth level is where they end, the end game is anyways. So I would say that's the only downside I've seen so far is higher level PCs, unless you go into more domain type work, um, they become very, very much bulletproof. So, I mean, not bulletproof, but you know what I'm saying. Okay. I just finished your unboxing of the chocolate and the record. You, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned Morpork. So I've had the Morpork books. I'm not, I, I still am of the opinion that Morpork is a, coffee table book with an RPG spliced into it, right? I, I still don't. I'm, I'm not sold on it. Carl can run it for me, and, and I'll happily play it, Carl, if you run it, but I'm not sold on work work. Um, and yes, today's a day off, and I'm drinking. So I'm drinking before I call you in. Call into you. Anyhow, point being, I backed a Kickstarter from work work too, believe it or not. I backed the one that the company that made work work did, which is a supplement, and then I backed one to play it solo. So I've, I've recently got that PDF. I haven't looked at it, but not, you know, I think Morpork might work interestingly solo, and I may do a solo run of it. Um, the chocolate, oh, records. So, yeah, man, I've now maybe I gave my LPs away. I had a bunch of LPs, uh, including you remember the old Bill Cosby. Con- I know Bill Cosby's a bad person. We're not supposed to like him, whatever. Um, and, and and definitely, I'm not defending Bill Cosby, right? I mean, he's obviously guilty. I, I realize he got out on technicality, but, you know, there's no question he did those horrible things. I don't want to turn your podcast into that. But regardless of that, he is a funny person. And his records, right? The um, I remember listening to that, the, the chicken heart and tonsils and all those old things, you, you know, the derby race. I used to laugh and laugh and laugh at his, his records back in, you know, when I was little. Um, Bill Cosby was a funny, funny, or is a funny, funny guy. I guess he's still alive, so I guess he is. But, um, yeah, I had all those on LP. I used to buy everything in LP, man. I had, like, Top Gun soundtrack, Ghostbuster soundtrack. I was big into buying soundtracks, you know. 
I had soundtracks for all these things. Um, okay, that's enough LP. I think I may have given my records away now that I think about it. I think I gave away one Christmas to a to the wife of, of my best man, a buddy of mine in North Carolina, because um, I didn't have a record player anymore. Uh, although they still, I think, make record players, but they don't make – I haven't looked. I, I remember when the news a couple of years ago announced they stopped making VHS players, which makes me sad because I still have hundreds of VHS tapes. And, um, yeah, I wonder if anybody's making VHS tape players anymore. I need to look. I still got one, but – you, you know, one is none, two is one and one is none. You always have to have backup, right? Man, I need to find some VHS players. I also need to find backups, some spare parts for my, my, what's it, is it a T, TS, the T55, the tape, the tape recorder that Coltrack used? I need to find backup parts for that too. Damn. Okay. Off to you, Ben. Okay. A lot to unpack here. <laughs> so... As far as the records are concerned, um, you know, I went, I went, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, I went back to starting to buy LPs. A lot of times now what they're doing is, at least the artists that I listen to, which are a lot of independent artists, they will, if you buy the LP, they give you a download card for like, you know, iTunes or, or off their own website or whatever to download the tracks as MP3s. That way you can listen to them like if you're driving and stuff, because that was my downside, right? That's why I was buying CDs back when CDs were the thing, so I could listen to them in my car. So now I've got the LPs. I got a little record player. It's not anything super fancy, but you know, interestingly enough, records have kind of made a comeback. They're just um they're more of a niche item. You know, I mean, I remember buying records. They were the main thing that we listened to. And you know, if I, if I went to the the record store, right? I mean, you could buy, you know, tapes or whatever to put in your car, but usually we bought the records and then just dubbed them down into uh, into cassette tapes. But yeah, I mean, so I've got not a huge record collection because I got rid of a lot of stuff, you know, a while back. But then little by little, I've been building up records and uh, I enjoy busting out my little record player. Um, It's like one of those little portable ones on like a Sunday and putting it on and just listening to some records. It doesn't sound as good as playing, you know, uh, music through my nice and, you know, uh, speakers that I have around the house to play digital music. But there's just something special about playing a record. And I thought for this Morkborg thing, I mean, I can't imagine ever playing the record while we're actually playing the game. And they did give us the MP3s as well. But I just thought it was such a cool idea to make the adventure in the record. I think what Morkborg's doing, um, and maybe other people are doing this as well, is they're kind of challenging or expanding or messing with the concept of RPG design. And I find that to be interesting because my background is in design. Um, you know, if you look at like the movement that we've had, I'd say in the last five, six years, um, I mean, I've only been playing d d for about five, six years. Um, you know, it looks like things are getting cleaner and cleaner. Like if I look at the things like OSE, it's like looked at as like the, the, the gold standard of like RPG design with like bullet points and short sentences and this and that. But, you know, I actually like, um, cooler, funkier design, even if it's not as functional at the table, but there is that kind of midpoint, right? Like I feel like Morkborg is, it's not a hard system, so you'd probably have to, but you need to have most of it jotted down or memorized in your notes because I think flipping through that book looking for something might be very difficult <laughs> as you're playing. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty cool system uh, as far as I can tell, as far as the look of it. I don't, I've never played it, so I can't actually say what it's like, but it feels like just a kind of, you know, standard retro clone with just a whole lot of uh, makeup on it. So one last thought of chocolate dice. 
I, I know it'd be hard for a little guy to do, and I don't know what the um, I don't know what they cost each, but you know, for a company, chocolate dice would be the would be a great con thing, right? Especially like Savage Worlds, you do or any game with bennies or anything like that. You do your your chocolate dice as the bennies, so you give them out to people if they want to eat them. Great, and then of course the temptation is there to eat them, right? It, you know, it's like my dad had these um, he had these old West liquor holders. And they had whiskey in them, I think. I don't remember, but I think it was whiskey. Or it was something. It was some kind of alcohol in them. But there was like a like White Earp and a Billy the Kid and a, a General Custer. And, you know, these old – and they were from like the 50s or 60s, or these old West decanters that had alcohol in them. And, um, yeah, they're really cool. And something you give somebody and you don't want to open them and drink it, but you kind of do, right? It's – yeah, it's one of those do I want to eat it or not kind of cool. Okay, I'm to the end of the episode, and yeah, man, alignment languages and alignment is really interesting. I agree with you. You look at Hyperborean Howard's stories and all of it. Yeah, most people are chaotic. I still don't think everybody would speak the chaos language, though, right? Does that housewife, you, you know, in the village speak cha- the chaotic language, even though generally they tend to, you know, even if they, they in general, worship Tathagwa, right? Does, does your average, you know, what you see where I'm going with that? I think only the the major players, obviously your PCs, your big adversaries, you, you know, the people in their armies, they would speak all this stuff, but your average people, even though they're, un, even though they're, they lean towards chaos, even though in like, think about Beastmaster, right? You just watch Beastmaster and I'm coming up to a minute. So I'll record another message. This is what happens when I'm day drinking. So think about Beastmaster, right? In theory, you're everybody. Once he becomes star becomes an adult and he gets into the village. Everybody in the village is in theory following um, Rip Torn. I forget his character's name. Anyway, he's following Rip Torn. Which, did you notice he's wearing like a little prosthetic on his nose to make it more like bird-like or crow-like or hawk-like or whatever? Beastmaster is, I'm, I'm a big fan of the director anyway. You know, it, you know, you know he did, Don Coscarelli did the Phantasm series too, which Phantasm is one of my, yeah, Phantasm 5 Ravenger, is not great quality and some of the later movies aren't great but phantasm is such a neat world and such a neat movie series um yeah phantasm is definitely one of my favorite horror series and i've just wasted another minute so i'll be back anyhow back to alignment and beastmaster so he's in the village or in the city whatever and you know he ends up hooking up with the they luckily enough they knock on the house and they get in with the people whose daughter's about to be sacrificed right but most of the people in that city are on board with Rip Torn, at least nominally. And nominally, the people that Kingdom now support, you know, Rip Torn. And I, I know I should have looked up the character's name, but whatever. Um, and so nominally, they're chaotic. But I don't think the average person in that city, even though they're nominally chaotic, really know, would speak chaotic language. You, you, you know what I mean? Where all, his soldiers would, and he would, and his priests would, but... It's kind of like the Empire in Star Wars. The average citizen supports the Empire. They support whatever government's out there, but they're not going to, you know, speak chaotic, you know, speak Sith, where, you know, your, your, your heavy players do. I guess my point is only the people really involved in the struggle on either side are really going to speak the law and chaos language. I don't think your average person, I think you could be neutral, leaning toward chaotic, right? but I don't think they would speak the language. They might recognize it, especially the way you've laid it out. 
And especially if you go the way the book series you were talking about, which have like the glyphs of power and things like that, they're, they're going to recognize those things. But I don't think they would re- like think about it. You know, your land's controlled by Sauron. Not everybody speaks the whatever the black the black tongue, right? Not everybody speaks that. Although your soldiers do and, and your lieutenants do and stuff, right? But the average person doesn't, you, you know. Um, I, I guess that's where I'm going. I don't know. What do you think? Is it should it be more limited to the more the people more involved in the struggle, or should it be more generalized? I'm curious on your thoughts, Daniel. Okay, so as far as the chocolate dice go, I think they were like six dollars for a set, which is interesting because I feel like you could buy dice for six dollars a set, so it's a good deal. So I did actually, when I found them, thought to myself, "Oh man, this would be great for a convention." But then I thought, you know, I'm running five games at GaryCon with six uh, people on each one. That gets kind of expensive, so yeah, I didn't. Plus, I wasn't sure, you know, uh, I mean, I hope that things will be better by then, but I'm not holding my breath that COVID isn't still going to be an issue, and I don't think giving food to people would be ideal. But anyways, um, back to alignment languages. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think what you say at the end is pretty much the way that I look at it. Like, you would recognize the alignment language, and that's actually even what's happening in the book, right? Like, this guy, what ends up happening without... I don't remember exactly how it happens, but at, at a certain point, he needs it really badly, and he speaks words that he never knew he knew, basically. But then once he speaks them, he recognizes that they're these words, and then as he sees these various glyphs, he starts to recognize them. Um, and that's kind of how I see it. So, you know, yeah, like not everybody would speak it. Your shopkeep isn't going to speak lawful to you when you go to buy stuff. I mean, that's not how I see alignment language being a thing anyways. But they might have, let's say, a lawful symbol above their door even if it's not a really powerful one that would truly keep chaotics out, it might at least show the people that, hey, this guy's not chaotic because he wouldn't be able to abide that, you know, in his shop hanging there, right? Something like that. I think priests might speak it um, when you are, let's say, attending a, uh, a, a church, a temple service, right? You, the priest might say lawful words or chaotic words, and those who are not truly aligned, their ears will burn, you know? So it's a way to know if your followers are are true. Now, what I would say about the Beastmaster, though, I'm going to have opposing views here, I think. I don't think those people were following Rip Torn. I mean, the priests were, but I feel like most of those people were just keeping their heads down and hoping that nobody took their daughter away. They seemed fearful. And once he was killed, they immediately were like, oh, let's fight the bad guys. Like, it was kind of like one of these situations where they didn't feel like they could do anything. At least that's how I saw the Beastmaster. Um, but what's interesting about that, <laughs> you know, about the Beastmaster is those weird uh, bird creatures that, like, absorb people, which are just so awesome. Like, what were they? Like, they came off to me as being kind of evilish, yet they kind of sided and worked with the Beastmaster, right? So you got to wonder, like, can you – and this is true in D&D too, right? Like, if you've got a group of goblins that are, uh, you know, following chaos, but the immediate needs of the of survival – require them to work with the with the lawful people, they might just do it. And I think that's what's interesting. I don't think that, it, that um, you know, it needs to necessarily be a restriction. It's just out there. Um, so, yeah, that, that's how I, I view it. I don't see somebody having a conversation in lawful. Um, I could see it as a greeting in certain situations. Although, again, I don't think, based on the way that it's used in AD&D or stated, I think I would keep this. And I don't know. You could make up whatever reason why. But I just like it in theory that, like, you wouldn't just walk around giving the lawful greeting because other people that were not lawful would recognize that you were speaking, you know, some kind of an alignment tongue. And 
that could make you targeted by essentially the other side, right? They're almost, you know, they're secret languages. They're not meant to be used. You know, you're not just like calling out to somebody. It's not like saying, you know, Gesundheit when somebody blows their nose, right? (laughs) It's it's more like a code to get into a, a, a service or that kind of thing. Anyways, that's how I see the alignment languages. Hey, Daniel, this is Rob, also known as Manion. So I agree with you in that, uh, yeah, the um, you can do away with initiative. You can just have everything simultaneous. That's fine uh, by me. I think that's how it was in Holmes Basic D&D and also in OD&D, some, some versions. Well, maybe OD&D has the 1D6, I'm not sure. Um, but uh, I guess, yeah, Chainmail. Um, I'm happy to use D6 as for groups because um, it's just faster than faffing around. Um, I'm happy to, for people to do individual initiative when it's for some reason um, there's there's that going on. There's that dynamic, some kind of dynamic where the, the group, each member of the group is trying to act before the other. Um, I'm happy to just say you've won initiative, <laughs> which is probably moving towards the territory of, uh, of uh, you know, simultaneous initiative. You know, you can decide whether everything just happens at once. Or whether... You know, the, the D20 system of initiative is all right, but it's, it's just it doesn't do anything. You know, it's kind of um, it doesn't even show one character having an advantage over the other, because on a D20, you know, the difference between um, no modifier and a plus three modifier or whatever is so minimal. And most people don't have plus one. So it's like, you know, a 10% difference. It's really going to make no difference whatsoever, except in very marginal cases. So it's, it's point, the, the dice is pointless. So you'd be better off rolling on a D10 and then add in the three or something like that in my, in my mind. Um, when I did it, I used a automatic, like a, a surprise, no, an initiative tracker. Um, and we didn't actually roll initiatives. I just had the the uh, initiative tracker do all the initiative for me and tell who was up, tell people who was up next. And that saved a lot of time. Anyway, nice show. Talk to you later, man. Bye bye. Ah, see, I obviously I agree. I agree with you agreeing with me. Uh, no, I, I like. <laughs> I definitely like simultaneous. I feel like one thing that you seem to be alluding to, not to put words in your mouth, is that being flexible is key, right? Sometimes, like, all the systems have their their times where they're good, right? Maybe if you've got 10 people all running towards a statue to, like, pull down the, or grab the sword out of its hand or something, individual initiative makes sense because now we're tracking individuals who's going to get there first. Maybe somebody that has a slightly higher score, you know, is going to get an advantage there or if they move faster or this kind of thing. So an individual initiative in that circumstance makes sense. Whereas if it's, you know, five PCs in a room with, with 12 goblins and everybody's just like striking at their opponents with swords, does it really matter who whose sword actually strikes first? You know, a side initiative is totally fine there or even simultaneous initiative. I think all that works out. I do think simultaneous ends up being or could potentially be more deadly <laughs> because obviously, you know, the other side will get to strike you even if... Uh, even if you struck them down. So that, that adds that little bit of tension there, making combat even more deadly, which I think some people don't really like. But I, I like the idea of being flexible. You know, I mean, in an ideal world, which is like, and we all have our own ideal worlds, right? Because at our table, we can do what we want as long as everybody at the table likes it. You can change things up. Maybe one round, maybe one, not one round, but maybe one combat, you decide to go individual. Maybe another combat, you decide to go side. Maybe on one, you just let the players go first. Maybe we go simultaneous. 
So yeah, I like the flexibility. And, and you know, if I was writing a system and I could do it in an elegant enough way to explain that, then that's probably what I would do is say, this is the initiative system that is the basic one, but do what's right in the moment. If you need to change it, change it. And I guess that's a rule zero thing that's a whole other conversation. But one thing you did mention about the automatic rolling is interesting to me because if I had an automatic roller, let's say I was running fifth edition and I'd want to run it by the book. Um, if I had some kind of automatic roller, like on a rule 20 or something, where it would just put everybody in order, that I kind of like because I like to roll initiative every single round. So the D20, that's what moved me away from doing the straight, the straight 5e initiative in the first place, was that I wanted to roll every round, and we tried that for a bit, and it was just clunky to everybody roll initiative every round, then figure out who goes next, and then we go there. So uh, at first I did it with the, uh, with the D20, then I was like, well, I'll do a D6 and do the countdown style but then all of a sudden everybody's bonuses are thrown off track and you know so it became just like a, a mess there so in the end we did side initiative which worked really well um but i used a d20 and used all everybody's bonuses because you know somebody might have taken a feat or they might have a special skill with their class that gives them a bonus to initiative so then it doesn't seem fair that they lose that because you know i changed the system so again adapting to your players is important but uh yeah initiative is is a it's one of those things, I actually just said this on the other Dungeon Discord, that I think we talk about a lot and think about a lot, but in play, it's rarely an issue. I, I can't think of any time where somebody complained about the way the initiative was. So <laughs> I guess all the systems work pretty well when actually being used in play. Thanks for calling. In the vast majority of situations in real life, one person is acting and the other person is reacting. You can see that in any boxing match or any YouTube video of a street fight. I taught fencing, and I can tell you that for 400 years, fencing was a practice exercise specifically designed to teach people how to fight without getting killed simultaneously with their opponent. It's very unfortunate that in a podcast you can't use the actually meme. Oh, I don't know, John. This isn't real life. It's a game. That being said, what happened to role-playing? It's pretty simple to just come up with three basic categories, fast, average, and slow, and use those to group what's happening and then let the role-playing determine exactly who gets to attack first. So, if one side is charging the other side, they would normally get the first attack. Unless, of course, the receiving side is something like spears, longer weapons, and might therefore get the first attack in their case. then once the initial contact has been made, then they can just alternate. You don't have to keep rolling every turn. In fact, you can think of initiative as being part of the combat role. What's key to initiative is when something out of the ordinary happens. You're attacked by surprise or with a longer weapon or with a missile weapon or something like that. What I want to see is DMs spending as much time role-playing combat as they do 
interactions with random NPCs. On a serious note, though, um, <laughs> you know, this is, it's, it's a game, right? I'm not sure what role-playing has to do with setting categories of speed, but I think we differ in terminologies. But what I will say is that you run it the way you want. I like that it changes. I like that you roll. I like the the chance you don't. You want back and forth. You attack. I attack. You attack. I attack. Like you're playing a game Monopoly. That's fine. That works perfectly fine. And there's no reason why you can't play that way. So uh, my advice there is to hack on to your game, whatever game you play, the system you, you seem to have created here. And that's good for you. I mean, that's the same for everybody. If somebody wants to play this chainmail game and they would rather do you uh, individual initiative, they are more than welcome to do it. If they'd rather never roll for initiative, they're also more than welcome to do it. I don't think that we have to be confined to following the exact rules. What I'm doing is creating the game that I like for my friends, the way that we play. And that's what really everybody should be doing. That's what makes this hobby so amazing. Hey, Daniel, Jason here. Just finished listening to your build a spider layer and Intelligent Sword YouTube videos, awesome stuff. Really wants me, really makes me want to run a, you know, an OSR, an old school D and D game. Maybe I'm gonna have to do that. Uh, I would definitely use Magic Swords the way you're talking about Intelligent Swords. Although I wonder about worrying about having too many swords in the game. I wonder if you don't limit the number of sword total swords in the game, create them before the game. You know, these are the 200 magic swords are in the world, whatever. I, I know that might be a little limiting to fighters, though, if there's any X amount of magic swords out there, because obviously, well, they'd be highly sought after, but at the same time, you know, obviously your more powerful people would have sought after them and tried to control them, so the chances of your low-level PCs getting a hold of them would be much lower, you know. Thanks, Jason. That's very kind of you, uh. Well, if you want to play in an OSR game as opposed to run one, you're definitely welcome at my table. You can play a little chainmail. Um, magic swords. Yeah, you know, okay, so this is an interesting question, right? Like, should we limit the number of magic swords? Should we uh, define them all before the campaign? That's actually a really good idea. I think maybe the special purpose swords, you might want to do that. Limit how many of those exist because those are going to be really powerful, right? Um, insofar as the other thing, I think it'll take care of itself. Because remember, magic swords have ego. And one of the things that sets the magic sword to challenging the PC is them trying to use another magic weapon. So if you've got a fighter with a sword plus one plus two versus enchanted creatures that's intelligent and they see a flaming sword, you know, versus regenerating creatures and they want to grab it, the sword they've got is going to be like, oh, no, 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 no. You're with me. And then you're going to have this thing, right? So having these intelligent swords actually sets you up where the player character is almost never going to be able to wield more than one of these swords. Now, that might mean there's a ton of enemy swords lying around. I don't know. I mean, I guess I'd have to play it out long term to see. I've never had that problem. Giving away magic items or giving away, putting magic items in my adventures based on uh, kind of the, the the procedure set up by Moldvay gives you a decent amount of magic items, but I've never had so many magic swords in my game that it became silly. In fact, the only time that I've ever had a magic sword in my game that the players didn't use was in a 5e game that I put a sword in at the beginning, and they once they gained a couple levels, their bonuses and stuff were so much that the sword meant nothing. It was like virtually useless to them. 
And that's what taught me that <laughs> you need to have more interesting magic swords. Although this one, this one was interesting and they, they realized later on they needed it <laughs> after they had given it to a henchman. So that was kind of fun. But um, yeah, I think that like if you, if you think of your average campaign, and again, it depends on how, uh, how high level you go, you're not going to encounter that many magic swords. What you're going to find is that even if 20% of the magic you find a magic, let's say that every big dungeon has one magic sword in it. Remember, a character's going to die. People can lose swords as well. Um, there's going to be ways... I'm making coffee. I don't know if you'll be able to hear that. Um, there's going to be ways that the swords can be given away. Again, they can be given as gifts. They can be given to henchmen. Well, of course, intelligent sword. Intelligent sword might want to give itself up. If it doesn't find you worthy enough, it might just not let you take it. I mean, there's all kinds of different ways that these swords might be left where they're at because let's say, for instance, you're raiding a tomb of an ancient warlord and that warlord had this magical sword and that's why you're going in there. You want it, right? When you grab that sword, if that sword wins that will contest, because again, remember, it gives a will contest. One of the things that activates it is the first time you touch the sword. So you try to grab the sword. It might just be like, nope, and you can't take it. It's there, right? You cannot have the sword. So there's going to be situations where people may have raided the tombs before um, to try to get these swords and they weren't able to get them. Or people buried somebody with the sword secretly. So, I mean, I think you can make it work in your campaign if you really want it to. But I, I also don't mind the idea of just having X number of magic swords in the world. And basically PCs fight. Actually, that would be, <laughs> although I don't know if I want to, that's maybe too magical for the the chainmail uh, sword and sorcery hack, but that would be the kind of thing you might have there where there's like, in the, in the entire world, there's only these like 10 swords claimed to be magical. And then warlords are basically fighting over them. Like whole countries go to battle over a single sword because people believe that that sword has, you know, these certain powers. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. <laughs> so I think you can pull together a whole lot of, um, a whole lot of adventures uh, based on that. So I, I don't think that, I actually think you would end up with a glut of magic swords more if you stick with the the swords are, you know, your your standard plus one, plus two swords that aren't intelligent because the ego thing is going to make it so that everybody can't have more than one sword, which means that you'll need to leave swords uh, that you can, just can't take. And also some people won't be able to touch the swords at all because they're not the right alignment or they, they might try to take them over. So, yeah, I don't think it's going to be an issue. Will it be that every fighter in the party ends up with a magic sword? Yeah, probably. But that doesn't bother me. I mean, one of the reasons why I like magic swords is because it makes the fighter have that extra something, you know? Now, granted, in the chainmail version of OD&D, fighters are amazing. So, <laughs> you know, maybe they don't need that extra little oomph. But um, in, like I say, like a BX-type game where fighters really, you know, um, they're not necessarily uh, the most powerful character as they, or as powerful a character as I believe they should be. I think that giving them these swords brings them up to that level. So, I don't know. I guess we'll see how it plays out. I've never played in a game where I only give out intelligent magic swords, but that's definitely where I'm leaning. Um, and uh, I actually rolled up, <laughs> although... Maybe I'll put them on my YouTube feed. You probably see it. Uh, I've been rolling up magic swords, so I'm going to put them up a little bit at a time. Uh, and I rolled up a few kind of really cool ones, some that would definitely be good for bad guys to have. So, uh, and again, that could be it too. Just like the one ring, right? Really powerful magic ring. They needed to destroy it. Maybe there's this really powerful chaotic sword that your group needs to take and uh, bring it somewhere and destroy it. 
So you've got so many options for the swords that I don't think it's going to be an issue um, in truth. Uh, The one thing I do think could be, I don't want to say problematic, but goes against a little bit of my general D&Ding is that, you know, I find that like people in in my experience and maybe in me as a player, I like to discover things. I like to find new things. So if you do find a magic sword, let's say in your third adventure, and it's an intelligent sword, and it's pretty powerful, you know, as far as the ego and stuff, so it's not going to be easy to get rid of it, <laughs> even if you wanted to, um, you may not be able to get another magic sword again, right? You might, that might just be your sword, which some people love. Like, I've definitely heard people talk about that. Um, you know, oh, you get one item, and it levels up with you, and blah, blah, blah. I'm not really a huge fan of that. I like variety. I like people to find new things. I like things to change. So locking somebody into a single magic sword early on could be a bad uh move maybe for uh, the creativity but maybe not you know maybe you can be creative about how you get rid of your magic sword right you like leave it at the tavern <laughs> i'm just gonna go use the restroom and then just leave the magic sword there and run out because you you want to get a different one <laughs> it's like you're cheating on your magic sword so yeah i don't know i'm rambling on about magic swords but in any case everybody thank you for calling in um and uh, we'll wrap it here all right thanks so much for listening thank you to my callers um, and as before, as I said before, if you want to call in about um, the videos, feel free. You can also obviously comment on the videos themselves uh, on the YouTube channel or call in about anything I said here. Hopefully, I will have some kind of a very rough working document for the um, the Chainmail Sword and Sorcery hack. And I'm going to start to run some like one-on-one sessions to get some characters established in the world, and we're going to go from there. Um, also, I may <laughs> you may see this next time. I'm dabbling a little bit in Star Frontiers, so. Uh, If people are interested in that, I may talk about it here, um, possibly. So let me know if you're interested, and uh, thanks for listening.